Welcome to Women of the Wild, where education and opportunities are key. And friendships are made to last a lifetime. Did you get him? <laughs> you think we got him? You think we got him? <laughs> got him. <laughs> All right, Skylar, what do we got here? to season two women of the wild podcast we would like to first start off by thanking our title sponsors for the 2024 year atlantic coral enterprise one of the largest import dealers in the world with excellent quality for hides skulls shells and amazing gifts for friends and family or even your household you can find them at atlanticcoralenterprise.com rm custom calls multiple world championships from main street to live duck American-made, veteran-owned, when you want to win on the stage or in the blind, we have you covered. Small shop, big sound. You can find them at rmcustomcall.com or on Instagram. We also have Rhino Land Safaris, providing exceptional quality with unmatched hospitality and cuisine, offering African safaris, a destination hunt for the avid rifle or bow hunter with some of the best trophy management South Africa has to offer. You can find them at rhinoland.co.za or on Facebook, Instagram. Hey everyone, Andy Lehman here from ACC Crappie Sticks. Just want to let you know about our crappie baits and jig heads. We have a wide selection of the hottest colors and big eye crappie jig heads in the most popular colors and sizes. Check them all out at acccrappiesticks.com. Thank you. And now for today's episode, we hope you enjoy. Welcome back to Season 2, Women of the Wild. I'm your host, Felicia Marie. Really excited today. We've had an awesome year starting out, but we've been doing this um, showcase piece on our sponsors, and we have a second-year sponsor with us today and really excited to talk to him. We've done several events from walleye to sturgeon to ducks, and you name it, this guy's everywhere. Um, so this is Connor Barr with Dreamcatcher Charters. Here in Michigan, super excited to have you on. Connor, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. You're you're one of our favorite captains out there because you're just like a ball of fire when you hit that water and you are just a bright light out there for everybody just beaming. Well, thank you. It's 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 my my passion. It truly is. I enjoy it and uh the girls that always come out are always fun, so it makes it even more fun. And, yeah, I get told very often, like, hey, uh, you really do love this, don't you? And the day I tell everybody the same thing, the day I say no to that, take my license away. Right. No, yeah. Fun. You are, like, the epitome of, like, just joy out there. Um, we've done walleye trips with you. Our annual catch and cook, we do that through you, where we take, you know, a couple different captains out. But you kind of coordinate the whole thing, and we take a couple boats out. 
and we got another one coming up this year. So really excited for that with walleye season coming. Um, but I'd love for our listeners who are interested in going with a good quality captain that we, we love and adore, whether it's walleye, sturgeon, duck hunting, anything like that here in the Great Lakes. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your guide service, how you got started and yeah. everything that you do? So I, uh, I got started, oh, what is this now? Time has flown by. I don't even remember. I think this is year six now. I got started about six years ago, and I've been working full-time uh, for myself now. I want to say I think this is my fourth season. So time really, really flew by, and I, uh, I just got started uh, with walleye and surgeon and duck hunting a little bit, and I, I never anticipated it getting to the point I'm at now, which, don't get me wrong, I'm not upset about by any means, but, uh, yeah, we just uh, took off running with it, and now I get to go to, you know, Africa and Alaska a couple times a year and all kinds of fun stuff, Ireland, and it's just, it's a riot. But here in Michigan, um, I start my, my Michigan season off with walleye on Detroit River, which is just an all-out massive run of walleye you've got i don't remember the numbers i'm not even going to try and pretend like i know what they are this year because each year they go exponentially up in numbers of walleye but uh tons of walleye come in and we just we just have a riot uh catch a ton of walleye lose a ton of walleye there's always a few broken hearts from the big one you know the good stuff and then uh i go to alaska after that but when i come home from alaska uh i get right into my sturgeon fishing and sturgeon fishing is uh, really, the best way to describe it is the most boring thing you can possibly do in fishing until suddenly it's not. Suddenly it's just chaos and there's rods moving everywhere and you've got anywhere from a 20-inch fish to a 80-plus-inch fish that is coming up from the deeps and jumping and running and it's just a riot. And then uh, when that uh, when October starts to get to the middle end of October, I move right into my duck season, which is all layout hunts on Lake St. Clair and Lake Huron. And that's if you've ever duck hunted, if or if somebody's never duck hunted, and they want to try it. Um, it's essentially equated to shooting a uh, 60 mile an hour target while jumping on a trampoline. So you know that's fun. Uh, yeah. But it's just a it's a good time. And and Felicia, you you can. You can vouch for my statement on that. You've done it, and it's it's a good time. It's, it's humbling. Yeah, definitely. Diver duck hunting is – it takes skill, and it you're, you're going to have a lot of misses, but, gosh, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, after the duck season is done in Michigan, I bounce around to Alaska again and sometimes Arkansas and – Africa and and back to Alaska in January. It's a good time. It's just a lot of lot of moving, a lot of grooving, a lot of hunting and fishing all over the place. I'm very 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 blessed to uh, have the opportunities I do. Yes, yeah, you're you're everywhere, like literally. So your season's about to start here soon, and you're gonna start with the walleye. And that for those who have never done walleye on the Detroit River, that river just lights up on fire. There's fish everywhere. Um, you typically do a lot of jigging for them. And like I know last year we were chatting and you were you were constructing everything that you needed and, and just you really put a lot of heart and soul into your fishing, into your clients. And it's always like the best time, so much fun. And we have 
we have a couple events coming up. We have the May 4th uh, Women's Walleye event, and we have that big catch and cook on May 5th with you. Um, but then we, we roll into that sturgeon, and like you said, it's it's like rolling, it's wheeling up a refrigerator from the deep. And it's, oh, yeah. It's, it's cool. It is fun. It is fun. Also, I forgot to mention a couple other types of walleye fishing that we do is like pulling crawler harnesses and, and body baits out of the lake. I used to do a lot more of that, but now I don't. But something that I love doing, and if I could whip every day in the season, I would. But walleye whipping at night on the St. Clair River is, um, oh, I'm passing a field right now. There's geese everywhere. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, sidetrack. There's geese. Um, and Connor has ADD. But, uh, <laughs> But, uh, well, listen, when you drive past geese, you gotta look. You're not a wall- uh, it's, it's waterfall hunter. You're not a waterfall <laughs> hunter if you don't pass the field with geese and get sidetracked. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but walleye whipping, that is a, a very fun. It's, it's really dumb. It really is. But it's a type of fishing where it's done at night and you can catch one to three fish at a time. So. It's entertaining. There's definitely no, you're not trophy fishing there. You're definitely, you're meat fishing, but it's a good time. Yeah. Whip but, fishing uh, yeah, is a lot of fun. It is. It's, it's like, it, it, it's really hard to describe how, what a repetitive and stupid motion it is, but how incredibly effective it is. Yes. Yes. And whip fishing, I think, is something that a lot of people probably don't even know what it is. That like when I did it for the first time, it's a it's a lot of fun. Um, you can go out and you know there's it's it's quite a a scene, right? Like it's it's dark out, the lights are everywhere from the boat. You can play music, and it's just this repetitive motion. And like you said, extremely effective pulling in you know one maybe two or three fish at a time. Um, reeling that in and having all those fish on one line is it's kind of neat um it's a it's definitely it's a different way it turns into a cluster real fast too <laughs> yes it can so, yeah but, i've learned that lesson a few times yeah the walleye are just a lot of fun in general but it, it's a tedious task i mean even jigging um you got to get like that right motion down and and there's there's an art to it for sure with whip fishing with jigging. There, it's it's kind of like I I don't know if I'm right here to say that, but it's almost like fly fishing. Like there's an art to it. There's a skill base that you just got to have this right motion. And once you find it and you find your groove and you're in it, that's when it's really going to start paying off. What I like to say when is you're 100 percent right. You're not wrong in any way, shape, or form. The way I like to tell people is just follow along with me. Do what I'm doing. Ask your questions, of course, because, you know, what what kind of trip would it be if you don't answer questions? But just follow along. Do what I'm doing. Ask your questions. And when it clicks, you're going to get it. And it does. It clicks for everybody. Some people it clicks in 10 minutes. Some people it clicks in two, three hours. But when it clicks, you finally go, ah, got it. Okay. And then the fun really begins. Right. And, I mean, that's with any type of hunting or fishing, really. you you got to find your rhythm and that momentum. And then just stick with it. Yep. Yep. And then uh, that's the thing, like, with on my boat that I had. I, I always kind of scoffed at the whole um, uh, live scope, forward-facing sonar, blah, 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 all that fun stuff. But I finally, when I got this new boat, I broke down and I bought it because 
it, it's stupidly fun to use. It's essentially playing fish video games. But I had a couple uh, people. A uh, I can't remember how old the one guy was. He was I don't know maybe mid forties. Uh, and then another lady who the two of them uh, this is two separate trips, but the two of them they just couldn't grasp the feel of jigging. So I turned that uh, live scope on, and when they were able to visualize it and say, oh, that's what I'm doing, all of a sudden they were surpassing everybody on the boat on catching fish. So having the right tools definitely makes it easier, too, for everybody to just be able to go out, not just go out fishing, but actually catch fish, too, while we're at it. Yes, yeah. Some people are that visual learner, so being able to adapt to how people need to learn from something is definitely something that sets you aside because not everybody learns the same way, and you're you're very in tune to that with people, which is a great skill to have as a guy. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I try. I definitely try. Sometimes it, it's, um, it, and it's probably, honestly, honestly, one of the hardest parts of my job would be being able to figure out. I have five hours, and that's what makes me giggle about people that say anybody can be a guide. Yeah, sure, anybody that can fish can be a guide at tech and technicalities, yeah, but it's being able to take five hours with somebody. Uh, I, prime example, last year I had a, a gentleman, Misa. His job brought him, he's an engineer, his job brought him up here from Mexico, uh, had never touched a fishing rod in his life, and he started catching fish, and it was actually really funny because he was out fishing one of the more experienced guys on the boat. It was entertaining, but um, being able to connect with people and teach them, and I only have five hours to get them to the point of being able to catch fish, so it definitely gets entertaining. Yes, yes. Well, and too, I mean, if you have, because I know you've done a lot of events with us, sometimes it's not just one person on that boat that you have to be paying attention to, to educating you're educating sometimes three four people at a time so being that educator in in that resource of being out and doing something is something that i think is overlooked a lot of times as guides like it's you can't just be a skilled fisherman there's there's a level of edu like as an educator that you have to have to do this and then on, on top of that caring i mean i've been on charters where the captain just did not care uh, he didn't care whether we caught fish, whether each person caught fish, whether uh, whatever, you know, even if it goes into duck hunts, uh, all that. Uh, sometimes the captain just doesn't care, and that makes it not enjoyable for anyone, really. Right. Yeah, you, there's no lack of that in your department. So after walleye season, because you're going back to Africa, that was something you kind of touched on there briefly. You actually do some stuff over in Africa um, do you want to dive into that a little bit as well? Yeah, yeah. So actually, uh, March fifteenth, I head out. Uh, I head out again for the next round of my uh, African adventures. Um, I've got a few. I think four or five guys going this year. Uh, but I go over there. I'm working on setting up a waterfowl thing because the uh, the outfitter that I'm affiliated uh, with over there, Shingola, uh, they don't. Uh, do any waterfowl and well I went over there and saw a, a amount of ducks that was purely absurd uh, and species that I mean after doing some research on them like the spur wing geese that are toxic to humans and they mm -hmm. have claws on their wings I mean it's just cool it's something I'd like to experience with uh, more people so we're working on setting up waterfowl 
But the majority of things we do is all big game. And when I say big game, I mean anything from elephants to rhinos to uh, giraffes and lions and leopards, all the big game, the dangerous five, the big seven, uh, and all your planes game as well to the tiny 10. We have the tiny 10 uh, available to us, and it's just really cool to go over there and live in a very nice, very nice lodging and and go out and see these animals. I mean, the way I explain to people that are potentially on the fence, whether not even going on an African safari, but whether they agree with African safaris or not is I spend more time in my binoculars while I'm over there and my camera lens while I'm over there than I will ever spend in a scope because it is just so cool to see all these creatures doing what they do they're you know they're impala for a living so i'm just watching them be impala and stuff like that it's very cool uh and of course as a hunter i want to put the spot and stalk onto them i want to hunt them i want to i'm a big person a big uh, advocate of eating stuff whatever you kill so i want to try everything whether it tastes good or bad i don't care i want to try it at least uh, and either be disappointed or pleasantly surprised and i'm going to try it either way yeah no, but those spur wing geese, oh. gosh. So I took that Egyptian goose last year. And I know you've taken some ducks over there. Those spur wing geese, like that's something high on my list because for our listeners that don't know, a spur wing goose, yes, while toxic to humans, they have a spur at the joint of their wing that is almost like a turkey spur. They're just, there's nothing like them. They're a massive, massive goose, but they're just, it's it's so neat to see these birds in other countries compared to what we get here. And they're like that bird almost looks, gosh, d- darn near satanic. Like they're all black and they have that red and then they have that spur on their wing. They just, they're pretty And neat. they're mean and they're toxic to humans. And it's like, that was, that's not something that we need to mess with. But I'm going to try and hunt it anyways. Yeah, no, I'm with you. That's like, that's a bucket list hunt for me. The waterfowl in other countries is, is very intriguing. Um but, like, you got to do a couple of ducks last year when you were there, and that had to be just awesome. Yeah. It was cool. I, I'm The way I like to tell people what I'm trying to set up over there isn't Argentina, where you go down to Argentina and pile up ducks. You know, I don't want to do that. I want somebody that is interested in chasing different species, going to different areas, uh, getting into the habitat with these different weirdo birds that are there and hunting them that way. And I mean, yeah, you're going to shoot a few birds, but uh, we're not, I don't want to sit there and pile up, you know, cause they got mallards, they've got pintails. Uh, they have two different types of shoveler. The Northern shoveler migrates all the way down there, albeit not as much, but they do go all the way down there and they also get the Cape shovelers and all that. So I, I feel it, it is way more valuable as a, destination species checklist type of hunt and way more fun that way too because you get to call out birds you get to try and get your spur wing and and aim for that one i shot a uh, south african shell duck and a white faced whistling duck when i was there and goodness were they beautiful just gorgeous birds they were neat and i think it's a, a really great thing that people aren't really aware of yet that's there because everybody always sees the big game that it's been pretty hush hush and within the last I would say two years it's starting to become more of like relevant of a conversation of shooting these birds and like you were saying with Argentina like 
when you're when these people go to Argentina and you're seeing piles of birds, it's because you have you have staff there with you. Literally, like as you unload, like as you shoot and unload that gun, somebody is handing you a loaded gun, and it's like an assembly line. So you're never without shells, and you're never without a loaded gun, and you just keep piling. And it's a it's uh, it would be a, a type of hunting that I would be interested in attempting. But I'm with you. I think that going and targeting a specific species. And like, you know, I want that one perfect spur wing or I want that one perfect cape shoveler or something like that. Like that bucket list bird for somebody. I think that's what intrigues me. Um, it's, re- it's really just a different world down there. Exactly. And don't get me wrong, is there going to be numbers of birds that you can shoot? Yes, but I don't feel like that's what we want to accomplish over there. I feel like the the species chasing is more of what we would like to accomplish. And to go off what you had said is it's kind of been hush-hush. It's because, quite frankly, most of the uh, African PHs don't really care because they don't see the value of it because waterfowl hunting is not a big thing there. But what they don't realize is it's a huge thing here and in multiple other spots in the world. It's a big thing. But here, especially if Americans are coming over to hunt big game, better believe that there's a whole nother group of Americans that will come over to hunt waterfowl. And while they're there, they might say, hmm, that Impala looks pretty, pretty tempting. Let's go for that as well. Right. Yes. So it's, it is, it's a different market. It is for sure. And there's definitely a market for it. Waterfowl hunters are a breed of their own. Oh, yeah. Hold on one second. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to get bombarded by dogs here. Yep. We're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsors, but we'll be right back. Share your love of the outdoors with your little ones through the exciting adventures in Dr. Josh Farr's children's books. As an avid sportsman, Dr. Josh Farr has taken his passion for the outdoors and uses his vivid storytelling to teach valuable lessons and appreciation of the world. Learn the alphabet through the ABCs of hunting. Find joy in exploring the outdoors with Let's Go Out and Play and more. You and your child will love learning about nature with Dr. Josh Farr. See all of his books now at drjoshfarr.com. That's D-R-J-O-S-H-F-A-R-R.com. Weeby Knives, a brand of skinning, fleshing, and butchering knives perfect for the hunters, trappers, and fishermen with a unique high-quality knife for animals of all shapes and sizes. You can find them and more information at WeebyKnives.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Stonehouse Digital Consulting, elevate your small business with Stonehouse's expert marketing solutions. Ignite your online presence and thrive with a tailored strategy to drive your growth. You can find them and more information at StonehouseDigitalConsulting.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Livingston County Pheasants Forever, Chapter 465, with a mission to conserve pheasant, quail, and other wildlife through habitat improvements, public access, education, and conservation. You can contribute by joining the meetings on the first Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. at the Howell American Legion Hall on the corner of M59 and Grand River. For more information and to get involved, you can find them at pf465.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Dreamcatcher Charters, a Michigan-based guide service for walleye, sturgeon, and duck hunting with a passion that drives their success, sharing the phenomenal Michigan waterways with everyone. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram. Feather Moon Outdoors, offering calls made from select materials. Every pot is fine-tuned in the house using the highest quality materials available. Also offering diaphragm, slate, glass, grunt calls, and more. 
For more information, you can find them at feathermooneoutdoors.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Stay tuned, more podcasts to come. So welcome back. We are jumping back into our conversation with one of our sponsors here, Connor Barr with um, Dreamcatcher Charters here in Michigan. We just dug into everything that you have going on here in Michigan, a little bit of what's going on for you over in Africa. But another thing that you brought up earlier in this conversation that I would really love to hear this story because I think it's just going to be awesome. And I'm playing it up in my head, maybe, but you went to Ireland last year and you got to do some incredible things over there. Do you want to tell us what that was? Oh man, I, <laughs> I cannot wait to get back. Let's, let's start the conversation off with, um, how, how do I say it properly? It is, uh, incredible just to say the very least of it. Um, I was in Northern Ireland. Uh, I have some friends over there, uh, met some more friends, uh, got to do some hunting while I was there. And I would like to go back for the waterfowl hunting. Um, just unfortunately scheduling doesn't generally match up for what good waterfowl hunting there in my open schedules. But, um, I got to do some deer hunting while I was there and it was very cool. A very different culture, very different style of deer hunting, and definitely some weirdo deer. Uh, so you've got the big one that I went for was a red stag. That was on top of my list since I was a little kid. Um, just chasing a free-range red stag was, like, up there. And New Zealand was always high on my dreams. Uh, it still is, don't get me wrong, but it was just always seemingly a little unaffordable at times but then uh getting into this industry which as you very well know you get into this industry and you meet one person and then you meet another person and then that person introduces you to somebody and all of a sudden you got a person that i'm sitting in a goose blind uh in a snow goose find in arkansas chatting with a guy in ireland and booking a flight uh in in a blind uh waiting for shooting light you know um just very odd roundabout ways to get there. But I get over there and I meet my buddies who I'd, I'd hunted with here before as well. And uh, we start going off and chasing red deer and we chase Sika deer, uh, not Sitka, not definitely not Sitka deer, but Sika deer. They're the Japanese uh, deer that got brought around the world by mainly uh, British noblemen as another means of hunting. Oh, good. All right. Sorry. I live in the middle of nowhere. So mm, service is interesting. Um, but uh, I didn't get much of a, a fellow deer. I got a little spiker, but I, I asked my buddy, should I shoot him? And he looked at me and said, I don't understand why it's not dead yet. Fair enough. Uh, so a little bit of the culture shock over there um, is something that is blatantly and strictly illegal here is like what's done as common practice there is there is a game buyer so you take your uh you cut the head off you cut the bottom parts of the leg off and you leave it and you got it and you take it to the game buyer and he pays you per kilogram of venison uh, and they debone it, send it off to different restaurants around uh, Europe, and then bones get made into dog treats and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, it was just a, a superb week of hunting. It was yeah about six, seven days of hunting. Um, we took a great amount of venison to the game buyer. There was five of us, and um, 
we had some warm barrels. Let's put it that way. Uh, and I got a uh, superb red, uh, actually, at, uh, as soon as I shot, um, my buddy goes, oh, expletives. I go, Ross, what? Did I shoot the wrong one? He goes, no, no. Um, actually, quite the opposite. I believe I just let you shoot the one I wanted for my mantle. So I'm like, whoa, oh, uh-oh, are you mad? He goes, no. I go, why didn't you take the rifle? He goes, well, that just wouldn't have been right to take the shooting iron from you when you're aiming at uh, a monster deer. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't quite understand because it was very low light. Um, I didn't quite understand the size of the red I had shot, which if you look at a New Zealand red, he is nothing of the sorts of like the 400-inch monsters, 500-inch uh, monsters that they shoot there. And, but we won't get into the whole debate on, on New Zealand deer, but it was uh, in the European standard of the, basically the equivalent to our uh, record books uh, for the European standards. I can't remember what it was or what it's called, but it was a silver medal. And I was beyond thrilled with this deer. Um, yeah. And then I, I got to come home and had most of my trophies confiscated from me, uh, because the Irish didn't uh, understand what um, what the American laws on bringing back taxidermy, because we did all European mounts on them, because that would be the easiest way to get them back to the States. And, yeah, it was a long process. So if anybody ever goes to Ireland, Scotland, all that, make sure you have your, uh, your I's uh, dotted and your T's crossed, because uh, it gets interesting fast. And yeah, definitely don't ask. have... Sorry. Oops, oh, no, go ahead. I was going to ask if you dive into that for maybe our listeners who are planning on doing some sort of traveling, what that documentation needs to be and what they can do to avoid confiscation of a trophy. Everywhere is different. So I'll start off with that. Uh, everywhere is different. Ireland, uh, the next go round I have over there, uh, I will make sure I uh, do a lot more research um, into what it was. So the the problem is, is, mainly in U.S. customs, and that's to be said about pretty much anywhere, Africa, everywhere, U.S. customs gives you the most um, problems and costs you the most money, arguably. But um, the U.S. customs allowed so much, and I, I it's a long, long story, but uh, definitely make sure you get your proper forms filled out and your easiest way would be to work with an importer company. I know a friend of mine is heading to Scotland here in, I want to say early October. And the person that is their guide, their outfitter is also an importer. So the importer is going to, the importing side of his business is going to bring his trophies. He's actually a Scottish guy with a business in I think Colorado that imports your trophies from Scotland to Colorado and then sends them to you in the States. So he takes care of all that. So definitely do your homework um, when visiting European countries, because they seem to be, and I, again, I could be wrong, but they seem to be the most difficult to get stuff back from um, via VAT taxes and so on and so forth. Uh, but coming out of Africa, I can speak more on that because I've had more experience and more success getting trophies back, um, working with the taxidermist to prepare your hides, horns, skulls, tanned goods, like my zebra rugs, so on and so forth. Um, working with a quality, uh, 
taxidermy studio that knows the forms, the, the laws, the paperwork and all that, and high-end preparation is key. Then having a good logistics company to ship it over here, also key. And then working with the uh, importers here. Uh, I use Coppersmith that's in Chicago because that's the closest one and the one that the taxidermy studio and so on and so forth has the best relationship with because they've been using them for so long. Um, it turns into a fairly seamless process. You just kind of have to be patient because it's not a, a timely manner at all. It takes quite a while. Um, and you find out that the, there are more fees. So understand that going into bringing trophies back from anywhere, you're going to incur fees from them, which obviously from your taxidermy studio, your dip and packs and your tannings and so on and so forth. Um, logistics and shipping, that's a given, which shipping was, in my opinion, a very fairly priced to get stuff. Let's put it this way. I, I spent, I spend uh, almost as much getting stuff to Alaska every year as I did shipping from Africa to here. So right. it's fairly priced. And then getting your stuff through U.S. Customs, that's where you have to make sure you've got all your paperwork right. Make sure you're on top of things. Make sure you're not trying to sneak anything through because they, they'll, they'll get you. Mm -hmm. They open up every crate piece by piece. Make sure everything is what is said is in there. So, and then going over, also going over somewhere and making sure that you can even bring what your targeted species back to the States is, i.e. lions cannot bring them back from South Africa uh, at all. I, there's a, uh, I've gotten mixed reviews. Essentially, there's no lions able to be imported to the United States. Um, cheetah, you can actually hunt a cheetah, but you can't bring it back here. Right. So knowing what you're that brown oh, the brown hyena is another one too. Oh yeah, yep. The brown hyena, uh Bontabuck, quite a few species that you just can't bring back here. Um expect certain things to have CITES uh requirements and cost a little more for permits to bring into the country and blah blah blah. But for your most part, your zebras, your planes games, your stuff like that, pretty straightforward, cut and dry, easy to get back home. Yeah, super inexpensive. Um, and I know you and I both did this same process of like dip and pack. We send it back here to the same taxidermist. You and I use the same St. Clair Flats taxidermy for everything. And it's a pretty seamless process. Um, and that's a big question that's constantly asked, especially with all the Africa trips that are being you know, a little bit more relevant to what's going on. Like a lot of more people are going over there. It's being talked about a lot more. We're hosting an annual trip. You're going over there every year. So you're starting to see more of it. And that's one of the biggest questions is like, what happens with the meat? You consume as much as you can in camp and the rest is donated to the villages, schools, nursing homes, whatever it can be. And then as far as the trophy prep, they really handle all of it. So your outfitter is going to, they call put it in the salt. They're going to put it in salt boxes, take it to the taxidermist there. Having a good reputable taxidermist overseas is so important because if that animal has, you know, a parasite or anything like that, and it's not fully eradicated before it comes to customs, you're going to lose your animal. Doesn't happen mm -hmm. often, but it's a possibility. I've heard that more from like Mexico to here more so than Africa to here. I haven't heard too many horror stories from Africa to here. 
but it is really seamless and you just create it and for people that don't know you mentioned a CITES permit a CITES permit is essentially a permit for an animal to be able to shoot it so like waterfowl has a permit over there your monkeys have a, a permit most of your predators require a permit so any night night critters like a civet um a caracal yep, yep. anything like that those are going to have your CITES permits they're inexpensive so don't when you hear permit and you hear paperwork they're not expensive well, some like, are some are some yeah depending uh, on the species like a caracal is like sixteen hundred dollars so that's something to talk with your outfitters too and see if they know before you say yeah sure i'm signing up to hunt like a caracal which is a gorgeous cat i would love to hunt one um the permit alone is just a wee bit pricey but uh it's something to definitely check too when you're thinking about booking a safari ask those questions say hey how much is it for some of these permits, a lot of the permits are dirt cheap, like you said, extremely cheap, uh, like Impalas and all that. I mean, it's next to nothing. You don't even know. I, I honestly, I can't even tell you because it was built right into the cost of everything from the taxidermist. So it's negligible for most things. But when you get into some of the weirder stuff, it's a little more expensive. Even giraffes. Giraffes have a CITES permit that you have to have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like- or at least they had, I mean, unless something changed, but. Um, I like my monkeys. So I went and did, um, the vervet monkeys, they were $50 a permit. Um, the waterfowl is, was like 25 to $50 for the permit. So it it does just depend on the, the species. And it's, it is something that if you think that you want to shoot something specific that might require a permit, most outfitters are pretty transparent. Like when you get their price lift, if it requires a permit, any type of CITES, there'll be like an typically like an asterisk next to it, which means that it requires a permit to hunt it. And they do, they all have different prices, but it is, it's, it's pretty seamless. Your stuff has already come home. I've actually opted to have my stuff held for one more year because going over there repetitively, like I am, it's just easier to bring it all back in one crate since it's all the same person, same household. So that's another thing that customs doesn't allow you to ship multiple people's items in one crate that used to be something yeah. and I, I don't know how many years ago that it changed off the top of my head but a few years back you used to be able to you know if you went over with a hunting party you could put that whole party in a crate and bring it home they're a little bit more strict about that now so um, that's something to keep in mind is if you're going over there you do have to create individually per household um, and it's just it's kind of a whole new world that if you have questions reach out to somebody like myself or like connor or even your safari company somebody else that you know that's been ask those questions the biggest thing that i tell people is like i don't care if you go with the company that i work for the company that you work for every the whole problem with it is people get and i didn't mean to turn this whole podcast into africa but it is a big passion of both of ours (laughs) um but one thing that I tell people all the time is like, I'm will I want to help you regardless of with you're going with me or not, because one bad uh, trip over there, regardless of who the outfitter couldn't negatively reflect on Africa as a whole. And I hate seeing that. And that it goes for the same, same here in the States. You get one bad outfitter kind of puts a bad taste in your mouth. And then you might be like, I don't really want to go to that state anymore. Well, don't right. let that I mean, one... you see it all the time in Arkansas, especially yes. because for the snow geese, because everybody wants to do snow geese and you run into 
Facebook groups uh, you know, that just say, like, snow goose migration is one of them. And you always see stories popping up of, oh, I went with this guy. And let me tell you, here's the story. And it's never good. I mean, it, which sucks. And like you said, you hate to see it. And uh, not to revert back to Africa, but to one of my biggest things that I use as a selling point to potential clients which actually, as soon as we're off the phone, I've got another, uh, I've got a call to do uh, with a potential client for Africa is talk to outfitters with an American liaison. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is I live down the street from you. Not you in particular, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I live down yeah. the street. If you have a problem with your safari, with your outfitter, you can come to my work and you can find me. And you can say, hey, dude, what's the deal with that? You can't do that. Or even scarier is there's a problem with um, CITES permits, or there's a problem with shipping, or there's a problem with whatever. You know, in that regard, you can come to me and say, hey, Connor, uh, can you get a hold of the outfitter and, and help me out here? I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing, or do you know what's going on? Can you answer this question for me? Whereas many times, and I hate to say it, there are bad outfitters in Africa. There's bad outfitters everywhere, but you can't go over to the African outfitter and say, Hey, got a question. Um, Now, of course you can always message them so on and so forth, but it's way easier to just say, Hey, you're 20 minutes down the road. Can we meet up? I got some questions. I need to have some stuff explained to me. So go with an American liaison uh, outfitter and whether it's my outfitter, your outfitter, wherever, it doesn't matter. Just, it makes things a lot better in my opinion, just because you have somebody that's in the same time zone as you on the same continent as you and willing to help you because my reputation lies on your experience as well. If my clients don't have a good experience going over there, I I'm not helping myself or my um, outfitter anymore. So it benefits everybody from my clients to have a good experience. So make sure you have somebody that has an American liaison you can talk to. Yes, absolutely. I think that is a very big selling point to any safari that if you're looking to book, make sure that you talk to reputable people here that you have trusted um, because those people are who are going to have your back. Um, so we're going to take another short break and hear from our, our end sponsors. And we'll be right back because um, we have a few more things to dig into with Connor before we let him go. And now to the final segment to this week's episode of Women of the Wild podcast. We will conclude this segment by thanking our closing sponsors. Stay tuned for more of this week's episode after this short word from our sponsors. Muzzy Pheasant Farms, a mid-Michigan family-owned and operated pheasant game preserve, that is open year round. Muzzy offers educational courses and hunts. They are family oriented, creating a great opportunity for new and seasoned upland hunters. With no membership required, come hunt with Muzzy Pheasant Farms. You can find more information at muzzypheasantfarms.com or check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Blast and Cast Guide Service is a veteran owned and operated Michigan-based guide service for the Great Lakes. With decades of experience of fishing and waterfowl, they ensure a safe and enjoyable trip every time. You can check them out at BlastingCastGuideService.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Ultimate Veteran Adventures. UVA offers outdoor therapy, recreation, and camaraderie through hunting and fishing adventures around the country for veterans, active duty military, 
Gold Star families, and first responders. You can find them at ultimateveteranadventures.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Sawmill Creek Bait and Lures, a husband and wife owned and operated company, the home of the C4, one of the best trapping canine lures on the market. You can find them at sawmillcreekbaitandlures.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Wicked 7 Outdoors, a Southwest Texas outfitter guide service with an exceptional care and quality of backcountry mountain hunts for free range audad. Also offering high fence and low fence exotics, come immerse yourself in the outdoor experience. You can find Wicked 7 Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram. Misguided Outdoors is a female-driven Michigan-based guide service offering turkey and waterfowl hunts. Misguided is focused on educating women and youth, providing a hands-on hunt experience for all ages. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. We thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. So welcome back. We are here with Connor, and we have been talking about everything from walleye fishing to sturgeon to Africa to Ireland. But another big passion that we kind of touched on at the beginning of this that I'd love to just dive back into is duck hunting. You are a fantastic diver duck hunter and a guide for this. And for those who maybe maybe haven't waterfowl hunted yet, you know, you hear those naysayers of like, oh, you shouldn't start people with diver duck hunting. But honestly, we have done some trips that we did do that. We, we put brand new girls to duck hunting for their first time out diver duck hunting and it hooks them that challenge and that eager to get back out is it's just a little bit different than chasing like puddle ducks or in the marsh. So I'd like to, to recap back to the diver duck hunting that you do and, and even talk a little bit about Alaska with the King Eiders and everything that you're doing. All right. So, um, I'll start off with what you said. It is a challenge. I mean, duck hunting in general, I mean, they're not easy to hit. Most of them are smallish birds. You got some big ducks out there, but none of them are like a turkey. You know, they're not huge. They're not big targets. They also move very fast. Then you add in the fact that you're in waves, you're laying down in a plastic boat or aluminum, depending on what company it is. But at any rate, you're laying down in a boat and you're doing a sit up, aiming and shooting at a target moving 50 plus miles an hour. And then you throw a little Kevlar jacket and a little Kevlar helmet on them because they're just about bulletproof <laughs> and you get diver hunting, you know, it's, it is a challenge and it is fun and you just never know quite what's going to happen, but it is also dangerous. It is something that uh, anybody that has been out on a diver hunt knows that I won't take off towards the layout boats until my safety talk is done for the morning. I mm-hmm. like everybody to come out with me. I like giving everybody a ride back to the dock in one piece much more uh one piece and breathing is much better than not so i i'm very safety oriented i do take it very seriously um but we'll go we'll do a little recap of them or a little run through of the morning so i get out stupidly early i don't understand where i get the energy from and it's not it's not okay by the end of duck season i've lost 20 pounds and i i look very unhealthy but i've had the time of my life but um, I get out very early and I go set the uh, layout boats and set the decoys, set my spread. Usually I'm jamming out just some music and having a good old time, whether it's with a deckhand or I'm by myself. I look real weird when I'm out there jamming out by myself and people might think I'm crazy, but it's okay. Um, but uh, we'll get, I'll get out there, I'll set everything up, and then I'll run back to the dock. 
pick up our clients, load gear, um, and do my safety speech, and then we pull up to the boat. The caveat to that is if we're doing a long tail hunt. Everybody, it's all hands on deck when it comes to a long tail hunt because at times we go six, seven, eight miles out. So I can't run back and forth to the dock that far out. Um, but we'll pull up to the boat. Somebody, whether it's my deckhand for the day or it's one of the clients or whoever grabs the layout boat. And that's the only time getting in and out of the boat, uh, you're going to see me be uber serious because that's the dangerous time. That's when I'm in the middle of my decoys. I've got, I don't even want to know how many thousands of feet of rope surrounding me, my boat, my prop and all that we're in waves somebody could fall off and that's that's the time where it is time to be real serious but as soon as we're away from that i'm right back to joking having a good time and probably poking fun at you for missing and then i get in a boat every once in a while and i miss and go man i really shouldn't be poking fun at people i am (laughs) i am not hitting anything over here so uh but you are all alone at that point and i leave you with your gun your ammo a radio and uh some waves at your back and you're laying down, bobbing around, going, huh, I don't know about this. This isn't the smartest thing I've ever done. And then you see ducks start coming in. And they come in blazing fast, and they're one to five feet up off the water on average. Sometimes they're a little higher, you know, 15, 20, 30 feet up. But they're not like you puddle ducks where they're dipping down and coming down from the heavens. You know, they're not holding donuts coming down from the sky. Uh, but they're just blazing in and more times than I care to admit, have I laid in a layout boat going, huh, I wonder where all the ducks are. Oh, my. Well, okay, those decoys are swimming. That would be a duck. All right, time <laughs> to set up. Uh, um, so it's just, it's very interesting. You're caught off guard uh, many of the times where all of a sudden you, you look left, you look right, you look left again and go, oh, shit, there they are. Uh, and they're gone. They've already flown past you. And you went, oh, all right, well, there is that. Uh, but they'll circle around and come back and it's, it's definitely a good time. And then, you know, I pick you up and we swap people out. So I generally run two layout boats and two different spreads. Uh, that way we can keep two people hunting at once instead of running through one layout boat. Um, sometimes that's what people want is they only want one big spread cause there's only two people or whatever, whatever the case might be, put both, uh, boats in one spread, but generally I have two spreads and two boats. Um, and then, uh, at the end of the day, I take you back to the, uh, dock and I drop you off and I go back out with my deckhand or just me and pick everything up, uh, repeat, do it again tomorrow. But it's, it's funny because it's so much work. Like you think, you know, as, as a duck hunter, or waterfowl hunter, you think like field hunting and you're laying all these decoys that that would be more work. But if you've never experienced a diver duck hunt, there's so much work. An effort that goes into it. And like you said, it can be very dangerous. Um, it's a real conversation to have. And it's it's a very skillful type of hunting because not only do you have these birds whizzing past you, but you're in like all this gear, you're in this boat, you're doing, like you said, sit-ups, you have the the waves crashing and moving around you that that's keeping you a little unstable. But it it really does just test your skill level. But it's it's so fun to see you out there and just in your element. Because you don't get serious often, and when you do, it's warranted. Um, but right, right, it's a it's a blast. But then you then after diver season's over here, 
you head down to Alaska and you help out with King Eiders up there. I said down there. It's up yeah. there. Sure. It's up there. It's it's a little bit out there, you know. Um so actually yeah, Jeremy Allman, he he's also another one of the guys that that works with uh, Women of the Wild. He owns King Eider Adventures and uh, a King Eider for the the people listening, um a King Eider is what I would uh, I would equate it to the pinnacle of duck hunting. For most duck hunters, many duck hunters don't even know what it is. Many will never hear of it, let alone see a picture of it, or they'll see a picture of it online and go, that's something in the middle of, you know, Europe or something that I'll never hunt. But what it is, is it is a hunt out on St. Paul Island, Alaska. Um, if you've ever watched the show Deadliest Catch, that little speck of an island out in the middle of the ocean is uh, 300 and some odd miles offshore in the middle of the Bering Sea is where they unload their crabs at to go back out. So that should give you an idea of the environment that we're in. We're in the deadliest catch area. Um, we go out, we have three boats up there. Um, we have two Zodiacs, which are uh, 13 foot inflatables. And I say that like they're like a dinghy, but I tell you right now, those things are monsters of boats. They will take waves. They curve over them. I'm very, very comfortable in them. And then we have a 17 foot banks boat as well for the days that is a little too rough to have the uh, Zodiac boats out. Or if somebody is, an older hunter, a disabled, um, maybe overweight, not trying to pick on anybody, but maybe overweight. Um, there are safety precautions that we have to take. So that is uh, what we have that for. Um, but you go out and I'll never forget Jeremy. Uh, the very first time I went on the Bering Sea was not with a client. Um, it was me and another guide, Gavin, in this Zodiac. It is pitch black. I've never been in one of these boats. I've never seen this ocean. Um, I mean, I've been in small crafts, you know, with ducks and so on and so forth, but this particular boat, I've never driven it. And Jeremy says, okay, see if you can keep up. Like, Wait, what? <laughs> what? What did you just say? <laughs> see if you can keep up. Right. Got it. All right. And we take off on a tear in the darkness. I, I would say in, in early morning, but it's not. It gets shooting light is... Uh, when we start the season around 10:30 and we end the season around 10:05 ish is shooting light in the morning. So it's mid morning and I'm just being able to see. So we take off in the tear in the dark and I'm going through five and six foot waves in this thing going, okay, I, I'm not sure if I'm a very intelligent man anymore, um, <laughs> but here we go. And you take off and when it gets light, you see these birds. You're in this this inflatable, a floaty boaty. It really is. And, and you see these birds coming at you, and you're like, oh, God, that's it. That's that's what I'm here for. And then finally, Jeremy will call out, or I will call out, or Gavin will call out, shooting light boys, and uh, it's time to go from there. And you, you want your drake because it's the most beautiful bird Maybe not on the planet, but definitely the most beautiful in North America. And it is a lot like the diver hunting out of a layout boat. It's it's very similar uh, to that in the fact that you're shooting a uh, bird moving uh, 40 miles an hour. They top out at 40, but it's shooting 40 miles an hour. And you're in, um, I, I don't, I'm not going to 
pretend to, that this is a real number, but I would say an average of five foot waves is a pretty good average. And this year we were in 15 footers. Now oh, wow. you might think 15 foot waves are like these crashing, breaking. No, no, no. We don't go out in that, but uh, it's rolling waves, but they're still 15 feet tall. <laughs> I mean, 15 foot tall body of water is, is pretty intimidating when you look at it and go, that's a wall of water. All right. So you have to, there's very specific ways to drive in those. So it takes a whole new skill set to drive through it and then to hunt in it and all that is quite honestly a uh, hunt that I'm very blessed to have done once and stupid enough to continue going back. So that's the best way I can describe it. Um, but then you get off the boats uh, when you make it back in the harbor. You're generally cold, uh, maybe a little wet, probably a little wet, let's be honest. And uh, you go back, you change, and you're on this island with some absolutely awesome people. So we have friends out there that we can sit and talk with and hang out. The bar has pool tables and dartboards and all that. Um, or you can go driving around. Uh, you can go see the reindeer herd. There is reindeer out on the island. You can see foxes. 204, I think, species or 200, yeah, 204 species of birds uh, inhabit that island throughout various points in the year. So you get to see some birds that otherwise you, quite frankly, are probably never going to see other than out there. They're seabirds. They're things that live from the time they can swim throughout their whole life on the sea other than breeding times. So it's just wildly cool to see some of this. And you get to see some scenery and some cliffs and, and the ocean. The ocean is has times where it's just ravaging. So to watch waves hitting a 40-foot cliff and going over them is just unreal. Very cool. Uh, you get to see this island in the middle of nowhere. If, and, and I challenge anybody to look up uh, St. Paul Island, Alaska, and tell me that they think it's a big island. It's not. Uh, it's very small but very and very desolate, but so packed full of life that it's just, it's an experience like no other. It really is. Yeah. And I know you guys had a group, uh, I believe it was a group of women out there this year where you guys got to have yeah, a pretty yeah. close encounter with some caribou. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, who was that? It was Ella. Ella got, um, an experience that, uh, people would pay large amounts of money just to have it. It was, we were out Well, I wasn't with them for this day. Um, I, I needed a break cause I love those ladies. Oh man, they, they hiked me all around that Island. They, they had more energy than me. And as you very well know, I am very high energy. So it was, it was a very good time. I loved having them out there, but Ella was out shed hunting with, uh, I think she was just by herself. And the other two girls were, I want to say, probably 50 60 yards away and they spooked this caribou and it was a bull he had lost, he had dropped one of his antlers already but they spooked this caribou and it came running right up to her and smelled her i'm talking like nose to body smelled her and then it realized wait a minute you're not a caribou and it ran off and stopped and <laughs> stared at them so it was really cool um we did do a lot of shed hunting um yeah, we found quite a few sheds, actually, some really nice ones, too. So they got a nice little extra trophy. We did do some beach combing to see what we could find. Unfortunately, didn't find much of interest. Um, I did find an old walrus skull, so that was kind of cool. Um, I actually still have a picture of that. It looked something out of a fairy tale. But, yeah, that was uh, So there's lots of stuff to do. 
Oh, it was cool, wasn't it? It was uh, it was definitely interesting looking, but there's lots of stuff to do. You just have to want to hike after freezing in the boat all morning, so it's, <laughs> it's different. But, yeah, it's a very cool island um, with experiences. I mean, there's foxes out there, Arctic foxes, but there are subspecies called blue, fa- or blue fox. Um, really pretty, really cool to see, makes some very entertaining noises. I actually had one client out. We were uh, walking up to do a shore hunt. And um, I don't know who uh, needed to change their pants more, it or me, uh, but I walked right up on one that was underneath this log, and it took off barking and yelling at me, and that was entertaining. I wish I'd had that on video. Yeah, (laughs) gosh, that'd be so cool. And then you guys got ptarmigan up there, which is super awesome, too. Uh, So those are on the mainland. There is no ptarmigan. I don't know how much I would pay to have ptarmigan on that island, but it would be a large sum of money because that would be very fun. But the ptarmigan are not on that island. They're off on the mainland. We get those um, when we are up there in the summer and early fall, uh, I believe August 10th starts their season. August 10th, yeah, the 10th starts their season usually. But I do definitely go after them um, after work when I'm fishing up there in the summertime. Yeah, because you do salmon and all that kind of stuff up there as well. So you kind of get... Oh, you yeah. get the bearing, you get inland, you get all of it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I, I, uh, I've, I've got a uh, appreciation for bears, but also a uh, comical attitude about them. Obviously, you have to be safe. Brown bears are no joke. Uh, they are big and apex predators and scary, and they got claws that are intense. But they're in. I'm there during a time that the the food supply is so. Um, oh, I guess abundant, it would be the right word, with the fish, uh, mainly salmon coming up the river, that they are comically indifferent to us. And I can honestly, well, they're more like raccoons at this point, very large and ornery raccoons. And they will come and sit and fish with you 20, 30 yards away. Of course, at that point, you're going to want to move down river away from them a little bit, but it's very cool. Very uh, interesting scenarios I get put into with bears and having to yell and maybe get a little verbally abusive with a bear here and there, you know, but um, then I'm getting the salmon runs. Uh, there's all five salmon species that come into Alaska. They come into the Knack River, uh, that, which is where I'm at. Uh, we do fly outs for uh, grayling and trout and all that fun stuff. And we do the main river fly fishing and uh, axillary creek fly fishing. It's it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A lot of different species. Uh, close encounters with bear and moose. Occasionally a wolf. And occasionally a wolverine will pop out of nowhere and see a whole bunch of different birds. To have uh, a group of harlequin go swimming right past you as you're fishing is always pretty interesting. Gosh, I I can't even like put all of this in my head at once. It's just so spectacular. And like I have personally never been to Alaska. It's high on the list, but you get to go every year, a couple times a year. And like it's cool every time. Yeah. And you just paint that picture of like exactly what like you see these photos and, and you get to talk about it with people and it's it's that adventureman's dream, right? It's the paradise for any hunter, any fisher, fisherman, woman that wants to experience something, it, Alaska always seems to hit that bucket list. And it's a place you get to go to at least, what, twice a year? Yeah, twice a year I get to spend there. I spend about four months a year there. 
uh, uh, three and a half ish a year. Um, it's just, it's very cool. You never know what is around the next corner. And I've only seen a very, very, very small portion of Alaska, uh, in relative to how big it is and how much opportunity there is in Alaska. I've seen a very little bit in comparison and yet I get to do so much there. So it's just a, uh, land of opportunity, uh, definitely land of danger, uh, land of, uh, adventure, really. It's the best way to put it. Um, and you never know what's around the next corner. I have come around the corner to bear. I've come around the corner to moose. I've come around the corner to 10 eagles sitting on a beach eating fish. Um, the very cool stuff to see. Uh, I have a little Fox buddy that was up there this year. He, uh, he got a little too friendly with people. So I hope that doesn't backfire on him in his future, but get a little too friendly with people. And he would sit there waiting for us to clean fish. He'd come by and clean up the scraps and, yeah, it's just there's stuff around the corner everywhere, and I actually took uh, my my fiance. I took her to uh, on a hike to the top of a mountain and got this beautiful picture of us uh, when I proposed to her up on top of this mountain of this big horseshoe bend in the river that you can see the fish swimming by uh, from the top of this this ridge. It was just super cool. Yeah, that beautiful place and. That had to just be incredible for you and Lauren to go experience that. That was her first trip to Alaska, right? Yeah, yep. First trip, and she got her first salmon that week, and her first king salmon, and she caught trout and got to see bears. That was her big thing. She wanted to see the bears and see the mountains, and she got to see all that. And that's just in a week. Uh, she got to, she got quite an experience. So it's, I mean, in a week you can see so much but still be longing for so more in Alaska because there is so much to see there which that kind of rolls into my my next topic with you is the support here with women of the wild so for those who haven't yet been on a trip with us or haven't been out with you yet um, those collab trips that we have together are awesome they're so much fun never a dull moment but you have a really big passion for getting people in the outdoors, which any guide should, but you have a really big passion of, you know, helping us, um, getting these women outdoors and educated. And, and Lauren has been kind of like the, I don't even know how to say that. She's kind of been that like prodigy of yours that she was not a hunter, not big into fishing, any of that. (laughs) And she's gone to Africa. She's been to Alaska. She's gotten to experience all these things and harvest her first turkey and all deer and all of this with you now um so yeah, now i have women, to fight her over my own damn deer stand yeah but these women get so um it's been a conversation that's brought up a lot lately is like a lot of women get very turned off by the fact that we we go through male guides right to me this is what i tell people all the time is it doesn't matter if you're a male if you're female i don't care what color you are like what we like to produce is the best quality people doing the best quality job and that you definitely are, but you have really grown a passion into, you know, sharing and educating people, which is what we look for in an outfitter or a guide um, that we choose to, to book with. We're very selective and it's what you do in your personal life goes to show of to why you're helping with us. And for these women that might be a little turned off by the fact that, you know, we don't always have female guides and that we, we have male instructors or, or outfitters. There's a reason for it. And 
you can't hold every negative experience with a man accountable for every man that you encounter, right? Like that's a miserable life to live. Right, right. But women, they kind of go into this shut down mode when men are around and having men like you around that are so supportive that you don't allow anybody to shut down. You are just a spitfire ready to go all the time. And like, it's impossible to have a bad day with you. Like we all have. No, and that's the thing is is if you're not having fun, I'm trying to make it because it's your own fault that you're not having fun. I want, I want people to feel comfortable around me. And I understand where women come from with the, not wanting to get to the outdoors because of experience in their life, maybe a ex-boyfriend or an ex-husband or um, father, uncle, whatever, that was just not, um, I don't know how to put it, not, not uh, um, objective into getting somebody into the, the outdoors, especially a woman. And so I can definitely understand where a woman comes from in, in that and my aim, especially when it comes to women and children, is to uh, be a little less like that and to be more open and to be more, hey, okay, you missed that duck, whatever. I don't, I don't care. Did you, are you having fun? Yeah, okay, good. That's what matters. Are you getting it? Are you having fun? Is there anything I can help you out with to make it more enjoyable? Because that's going to bring you back. Mm-hmm. What is in my world is with a woman getting into the outdoors, that's going to allow, if she has children, that's going to allow her children to see dad does it. Sure. All right. Uncle did it. It was boys camp. It was beer camp, not deer camp. Well, okay, sure. That might be a thing. But maybe if mom and dad are doing it together, that is going to be what continues our lifestyle and leads to more hunters and leads to uh, activists for hunters rights, animal rights, conservation, because let's face it, hunters are the largest contributor to conservation. And we are seeing a dwindling number of hunters, uh, whether that be because of land access or because of just the society we live in being more concerned about phones than being outdoors. Uh, Who knows? But, if I can just do my little small part to keep a woman uh, interested in being outdoors and then her kids see mom doing it and her kids go, well, that's pretty cool. Especially if she has a daughter and the daughter says, well, if mom can do it. You better believe I can do it. And then if they see mom and dad doing it together and it's fun for both of them, maybe that kid's going to want to continue our heritage of it. That's kind of where I, how I look at it. I mean, in, in the reality of it, we're, we're one wrong vote away from losing all conservation efforts in many places. Yeah. And I've always had that saying, you can take a man hunting and you've taken a man hunting. If you take a woman hunting, you've now brought a community because they're going to share it with their friends. They're going to share it with their family. They're going to share it with their children. And like you said, you know, you might have a dad in the family that hunts and it's like, okay, dad hunts. That's dad's thing. That's dad's time. But when you have a, a, a woman that hunts, and whether dad hunts or not, that's something actually we see a lot is the women are starting to get into hunting, but maybe their spouses don't, or maybe their spouses do. But now that you've introduced that mother, those children, they can't be left at home with mom. They're going to come out. They're going to enjoy it. They're going to get away from that screen time. They're going to get educated. And that's what our focus mm-hmm. is here with with Women of the Wild is the education, because 
having proper educated outdoorsmen is what is going to lead our future of conservation into success instead of falling. And, and you are one hundred percent right. And you're I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, yeah. you are a hundred percent right and the prime example of that. Because I wanted to say you take your kids all over the place. And I just saw one of your mountains with your son's first trapped raccoon and some wood ducks on it. And I really can't wait for you to see that mountain. You are going to be in love. But uh, your kids aren't allowed to just sit at home while you go do this stuff. You are making them. And I've seen your boys. I've seen how they like to do it. And I see the passion that they're being instilled from you doing it. And that is the prime example of why your group is so important. Why Women in the Wild is so important is because of you and your kids and the women and their kids and many of the women in the group have recently had kids well guess what that's our next generation of hunters men women children whatever that's our next generation yeah i mean we just had hannah which she's been out with us a ton but look at everything she went through and then she brought little Bo in the world and and he's going to be out there with her. And, and we just actually had another team member, Megan Amershock in Kansas, just had little Brixby. So two of our team members within a one-year small shoot, within six months of each other, had babies. Um, and a lot of us are mothers or are going to be mothers or, you know, are, are new mothers. And it is. It's so important to make sure that we have that proper foundation to instruct our children that we're not putting the wrong information in these little ears that absorb everything. So the better educated we can provide women to be, the more educated they're going to be to provide for their children. And it, it, it hopefully will become a ripple effect that will provide better education because I do feel that we had skipped a a big, big portion of generations there of proper education. Like we just hosted a, a women's shotgun clinic with Muzzy pheasant farm and um, Wing and Clay magazine. And it was a phenomenal event. We had these women out where we taught firearm safety. We ha- we taught a little bit about like hunter's education. Um, but then we taught them how to shoot clays, how to take their gun completely apart, how to properly clean a completely tore apart gun and how to put it back together. And then we taught them how to reload shells. So in that, and then we took them on a hunt afterwards, but In that, in that learning how to properly tear a gun completely down and how to clean it and reload shells, I don't think most hunters know how to do that, Um, at least not in the generation that I'm from. I I feel like most people, like, they know how to spray some oil in their gun and and wipe it out a little bit. But for the most part, like, a thing that I've seen a lot, you know, out with the waterfowl fields is people don't even know how to put a plug in their gun. So there's, oh, yeah. there's an education step that has been massively missed. And if we can draw that back and reintroduce that education as the forefront, safety always will be the forefront. But right after that becomes the education, that proper education to share off with, with women, with men. Um, you know, we host these online courses and I, I tell people all the time, like those don't have to be just women. If there's a man that wants to learn women of the wild, yes, we are women of the wild, but in creating that, we're also a family entity that we have co-ed events, that we have youth events, we have mommy and me events, but we want to educate everyone. It doesn't have to just be women. And I I know that can be really standoff for some people. They see, oh, it's Women of the Wild. It's only a women's event. That's not the case. Like, 
I, I encourage men to join us when we have those co-ed events and I encourage them to join us when we have those online instructor courses, because if you want to learn, we, we are willing to teach anyone of all walks of life. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And, and it's generally a good time too, because it is people coming together, men, women, most of, of course, obviously it's, it's a women's group, but it is a, uh, education focused group and that benefits all involved really right and it's like not to say we have our events where it all experience levels are welcome and we do have some events where they're for the the more experienced levels um so we do provide those types of events but but that is our main focus at the end of the day the education is a hundred percent the main focus of women of the wild and and having guides like yourself, um, like Jeremy, like Chris with Blast and Cast Guide Service, like Joe with Muzzy Pheasant Farm, we we have outfitters, we have guides that are good quality people because they are the best that we have found, regardless of, of sex or anything like that. They are the best quality people to put that education in other people's hands. And that to me is a force to reckon with at the end of the day, that it doesn't all have to be women, um, that it doesn't all have to be, you know, it doesn't have to just be men. It doesn't have to just be women. We can all be in this together. And, and as outdoorsmen, really, that's what we should be doing, joining hands and growing together instead of worrying about who your, you know, who your competition is. I always tell people my only competition is who I was yesterday. And it, it doesn't matter what someone else is doing or if it's the same event or anything like that. Like we need to get past that or, you know, you get into these, oh, they shot a spike. Who, who are you to judge of what's, what that is to someone else and what that means to someone else? So I think that that's a really important thing to educate people on is, is maybe being a little bit more intuitive of the fact that Maybe that was their only time out duck hunting and that's why they shot that many Susies because I always hear that one. Or, you know, maybe that was their only, they only had two days to get out during deer season and that's why they took a spike. Um, or maybe they just needed meat on their table. Like, right. it doesn't matter. And and we as outdoorsmen are not serving ourselves well by hindering that in other people and stealing that joy from other people. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, there's... There's counter arguments to it too with the management or herd, but that's a much further down the road conversation. Uh, but like you said, you don't know what that deer is to somebody. You don't know what that duck was to somebody. You don't know what maybe that little pheasant hunt that they got one bird on and they mounted that one bird. I don't care if it was from a farm that was their first pheasant and they were so stoked and maybe that's opening doors for them to do, to grow an interest and to spark that flame and become more and more of a hunter. So I agree with you fully. Yeah. It's it, we as, as hunters just need to do better at the end of the day. That's, nah, that's I, the I final agree. statement there, right? Is we just need to do better. And it's people yep. like I... you, our group, every team member that we have, um, other, other outfitters and guides that we work with, that's the people we choose to, to go with or the people that just want that same mission to do better. Well, Connor, Absolutely. it's been amazing talking to you. Um, I know that you have a, a call to get on with Africa. So I am going to 
to, to complete the call, I really want to let you put in your plugs, um, let people know where to find you on social media, how they can book a hunt with you, book a, a fishing trip with you or, or anything like that. If you have um, any social media plugs that you want to plug in there for people to get in contact with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me out. It's been a pleasure. I, I hope to do another one and I can't wait for our, uh, our May walleye trips. Uh, if anybody is interested in uh, Alaskan fishing, Alaskan uh, duck hunting, give me a shout uh, either at my phone number, uh, 248-296-0580, or Facebook. I am on Facebook more than Instagram. I have an Instagram. I'm terrible with it. I'm the first <laughs> to admit it. I'll do better. But in the meantime, <laughs> Facebook, uh, Dreamcatchers Charters is uh, me. It's got an animated uh, walleye is my logo, and that's my profile picture on there. Um, or my phone number, uh, walleye. I run that coming up here from uh, April through uh, early June, and then I'm off to Alaska. Sturgeon, if you've never felt the pull of a giant surgeon just rip and drag out and trying to pull you over the side of that boat, give me a call. Let's get out there or watch for one of the, one of the women of the wild trips. Uh, we do a few sturgeon trips every year. Um, again, same thing, phone number, Facebook, texting is probably the best uh, way to get a response from me. I mean, you can give a phone call, but texting is generally the best response because uh, I may look at it and go, I got to respond to that. I'll do it when I sit down tonight because for whatever odd reason, I have more energy than is humanly allowed. And I just, I'm always moving, but, uh, same with the duck hunts, uh, give me a shout watch. We have, I think, Felicia, I believe we got what, two, two duck hunts, maybe three scheduled three. on the docket so far this year, something yes. like that. So again, watch for the women in the wild hunts. Um, know that all ages are welcome. All skill levels are welcome. Uh, let's just have a good time. And, and I appreciate you having me out. I am very proud to be part of the organization. Yes, thank you so much. Alrighty, I will talk to you soon, and I will probably be seeing you Saturday. Yes, sir, you will.